You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, okay, so as a reminder, right, I've already said this a little bit, but but Paul is, um, he's encouraging, he's, he's fatherly, writing as a father to the people of the Philippians. He's, he's encouraging them to live in harmony and unity. Um, and in the love of Christ, he's, he's imploring them to display that to one another. Right? He's been building this case over the course of the letter, kind of updating them on himself. Because he's, if you don't know, Paul is in prison at this point. He's writing from prison. He's suffering. He, a few chapters earlier, he was debating on whether it would be better for him to die or to live for the sake of the people's faith here. And he's decided, well, I'm, I'm going to, no, I need to stay alive because um, my work is not done for the sake of Jesus. And then in this section that we read, he starts out with this, um, this call to obedience that is a little bit of a call out, in my opinion. He says, um, hey, like, live in obedience to Christ, whether I'm there or I'm not. And so why does he do this? Well, there, there might have been some suspicion or a report that reached Paul that said that, yeah, the people of the people of Philippi, the church in Philippi, they're doing a really good job of living in unity and obedience and harmony, especially when you're around uh, in their midst. But when you leave, maybe it's a little more difficult. Maybe unity is a little more difficult. And Paul is, Paul is simply saying, hey, like, whether I'm there or not, the, the Holy Spirit is with you. Have the mind of Christ and love one another. Like, we get this as as kids, right, we learn to act right around our parents. We learn to act right around family members. Like our parents tell us, like, act right. Your grandma's coming over. Your granddad's coming over. Um, but then when, when we're not being watched by an authority figure, we're much, our children are much more liable to act up, to, to have freedom, to draw on the walls, as my kids do often when I'm not around, um, much to my frustration. Um, and so for us, the, the question is, the question that Paul is posing to them and to us is, who are we when we're alone? Like, it's a question of character, right? Our, our, our culture will kind of define character as character is who you are when nobody's looking. That's a, biblical, that's a biblical definition of character. Paul is saying, okay, when I'm not around, when, when I'm not among you, who are you? How do you act? Make sure you, you remember to be obedient to Christ in a way that displays unity, humility, love, and joy, even when I'm not in your midst. And so the question for us is, who are we when we're not seen by, whether it's church leaders or, or people we respect in the church by other believers or, or by anyone, like family members, friends, like who are we when we are alone? And, uh, and we're getting at this idea, right, that, that Christ Paul is getting at this idea that Christ is always present by his spirit. He's always watching. And that's not, a, that's not a scary realization, although it might strike a little bit of fear in our hearts when we think about who we are. But, but Paul is trying to say, actually, as a comfort, the Holy Spirit is always near, always present, always watching, always working. Let's see how he writes that. Um, it's the next line. I'll start right at the beginning. It says this in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own 
salvation for with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so as you've seen in the Philippians uh, letter so far we keep coming back to this idea of obedience what, is, what does it mean to have a worthy life where we are doing good and following the Lord's instruction where we are living humbly in light of who God is and what he has done and what he has done is he's freed us from slavery to sin. But here, here Paul quite famously kind of goes a step further and says this, like, work out your salvation. What, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying what it sounds like he's saying, which is work to be saved? Well, no. He, he, luckily, we have the verse that immediately follows it, which says, Work out your own salvation with reverence to God because it's God who works in you. So it's really more of a work out of your salvation. You have been saved, and therefore the way that works out in your life is that we do good. We live in obedience to God. And this is, we're going to keep working with this idea. This is a great tension. Um, and in fact, if you, if you study uh, like church history at all, you'll find that the church has grappled with this question forever. What does it mean to be saved? Is it purely that Christ has done something on our behalf or are works involved? Are works involved? And the answer is yes to both. Paul is telling us the answer is yes to both. It is purely that Christ has saved you. It is purely that his righteousness is substituted for our unrighteousness. And yet a result of that is that we will, by the power of the Holy Spirit sent to indwell us, desire to be obedient, that we'll desire to do good. And in fact, the good that we do will be, it will be a way that we display our salvation. It'll be a way that affirms that we have been saved, right? We're going we're to talk about that a little bit more as we continue in the verse. But the reason, so he, he tells them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God works in you. And, and the reason he gives us for doing this is because, Paul says, because this makes God happy. It brings God pleasure. It makes God happy to work in us to do good. And I think, like, I want, if you do anything this week as far as meditating on the verses um, that we read this morning, like, I wonder if your time would be well spent meditating on that verse, that God is at work in you because it makes him happy. That, that it makes it makes God happy. And this is a little bit getting at what we talked about last week where we said live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, God in Christ has, has lived the obedient life, has died a substitutionary death, and has risen in victory over sin and death, therefore sealing his righteousness on those lives that come to him in faith. And God is saying, and well, Paul is saying that because God has done this, because he has freed you from sin and slavery and death, when you live into that, when you work out that truth by doing good, by living in harmony with one another, by living in humility with one another, by having joy for one another, God is pleased. God is pleased by that. God is pleased to do work in you by the Holy Spirit. God is happy because we've been made alive in Christ. We've been brought from death to life. That's what we celebrate when we do baptisms, right? It's God has defined the life obedient. He's defined the life obedient. It's to, 
to love one another, to be humble and strive for unity. And so God has said, I've saved you from that life of sin into the life that I define. And I send my spirit to dwell within you and work to make you more like my son. And when that is happening, that process that we are all a part of, those of us in Jesus, I'm happy. I'm happy. Um, the letter continues with a compelling kind of appeal to continue to live in accordance with this life. Um, but by living in accordance with what God is doing in us by his spirit. Here's what uh, he says in verse 14. Therefore, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that, you did not, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Uh, I want to draw your eyes to, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 32. It's almost an exact paraphrase of Deuteronomy 32. Um, really verse 5, but let me read verse 4 for context. It says this, The rock, Yahweh, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without sin, without iniquity, just and upright is he. And he says this, They, the people of Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, so Paul is making a comparison for us. He's comparing the church who is redeemed in Christ in Philippi or, or us. He's comparing us to the Israelites after they were freed from slavery in Egypt and in the wilderness. And so, if you recall just that story in Exodus, the people in Israel are freed from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh, and they are delivered into this place called the wilderness, and they immediately disobey God. They fashion for them a calf and say, this gold cow is the one who saved us from slavery. And God says, no, it was me. Remember, I'm Yahweh. I am God. And they say, oh yeah, we forgot. Um, and so, God says, okay, well, you're going to you're gonna, I'm going to reserve the promised land for your offspring, but not you, because of your corruption. And so you're going to wander in the desert, but don't worry, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you water to drink from a rock. I'm going to feed you manna. Um, and the whole time, the people grumble. They say, gosh, I wish we were back in Egypt under slavery. That was a lot better under Pharaoh than being out here with God. And so these words to Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy are God saying, they are no longer my children due to their unfaithfulness. They are blemished. They are not blameless. They are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then when Paul gets to write to the Philippians, he's saying, that's not you. That's not you because of the work of Christ and the work that Christ has done on your behalf. He says, therefore, you do things without grumbling or disputing because you are blameless and innocent. You are children of God, and therefore, you are not a crooked and twisted generation. You're in the midst of a crooked generation. And what should you do in the midst of that generation? You should shine. You should shine like lights. Be obedient. Love one another. Strive for unity. Don't grumble. Don't be cynical. Um, he's saying God, God has freed you. Just like God freed the Israelites from slavery, God has freed us, the church in Philippi and the church in Houston, Sojourn Mantra, he's freed us from slavery to sin and delivered us in freedom to life. So therefore, we can work out our faith in freedom. 
joyful, love, unity, humility, and without grumbling. Like, we're, we're left no room in these verses. Paul says, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without disputing. And I really think uh, for, for at least my generation, um, and maybe I'm a millennial, maybe Gen Z's too, um, I think cynicism and grumbling are, are such a temptation for us because they're just really cool. And here's what I mean. It, it, it makes us look wise or cool in our own eyes to, or maybe nonconformist in some way to kind of cross our arms and judge what's going on and sit at the back of a room and just kind of scoff and grumble at the way things are going. It, it looks cool to do that. The problem is, it's sinful. <laughs> the problem is, it's not the way of Jesus. Like, to sit back and judge what's going on, either in the church or in our lives, and just kind of say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopelessly pessimistic about all of this. Everybody's motives are impure. I don't want anything to do with it. Like, that, that is not what Jesus has died to save us into. It's just not what he rose again to have victory over. Paul is saying, look, like, we should, we should look at whether things are going bad for us or good for us. We should look with hopeful, realist optimism and say, I don't, know, I don't know what the Lord is doing, but if I did know what the Lord was doing, I'd be celebrating. If I did know what God was working through this suffering, I'd be celebrating. So, no, I'm not, I'm not hopelessly optimistic that I'm going to win the lottery or something if I just pray enough or do enough. What I am hopelessly optimistic for, about is that God is working all things for my good because he said he will, and at some point he's coming back or I'm going to die and be united to him. That's really hard to grasp, but in the face of cynicism, it's actually radical. Um, the other reason we should live like this is Paul says, you will be like lights. That's, there's an allusion to Daniel um, I think chapter 12, I, I didn't write it, so you can maybe write that and, and fact check me. But then I, it's also an allusion to Revelation 2, where, where uh, the angel of the Lord is writing to the churches. And basically, all this is communicating is this, that, that we are to be lights in the darkness. The darkness is this twisted and crooked generation. We are to, be, we are to live in a way for the sake of the unbelievers in our lives. The verse says, shine among them like lights in the world. What do lights do in the darkness? Well, lights communicate hope. They communicate rest. They communicate safety. They illuminate the way. They are guides. Lights say, to live this way is to walk a right path. They say, come here. Like, think of a lighthouse in the dark. What does a lighthouse do? It beckons a ship lost in the dark to come home. So when we live in a way that fights against the temptation for grumbling cynicism and fights for optimistic, real hope in the gospel and who Jesus is, we are beacons to an unbelieving world that there is a path this way, that there is a way home. It's why we live as lights. The good news is we aren't left to wonder what this life of an innocent child of God who's being a light looks like. Um, Paul is going to give us two examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as I said at the beginning, in most of the letters to the New Testament, this travel update would be at the end of the letter, almost as like a footnote. Like Paul finishes his argument and would say, okay, also, by the way, I'm sending you Timothy. Like receive him and tell him that things are good here and, and blessings to you. Amen. But here, Paul does something 
by way of example, right? He, he, he's going to give them two reports on two men who live with exemplary character in the light of the generation that Paul is talking about. He wants to draw our eyes to, here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Um, so, so the argument of the letter to, to the Philippians is to live like Christ. He wants us to live like Christ, to suffer well, and in doing so, grasp joy. And then this is what happens at the peak of the letter, th- these words, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And by the way, how it will go with me, whether I live or die, that's what he's talking about. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Hope, optimism. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Why are Timothy and Epaphroditus at the peak of this letter? What is, what is the purpose of this? Well, first, just thinking about this, Paul could have just shared the gospel of Jesus here. He could have just said, Look to Christ. He is our example. He could have just said, look to me. I'm Paul. Like, follow me as I follow Jesus. He does that in other letters, right? He says, look at me as an example. But instead, Paul is doing something here to give us an example of the type of humility that the Christian life produces. He says, don't look at me. Don't look at, you. Look at, look at these men who work for me, Timothy and Epaphroditus, you may, like, Tim, there's going to be two letters that end up becoming the word of God to Timothy, so we know about Timothy um, from that, but Epaphroditus, like, we've never, he's rarely in any other part of the gospel, um, but Paul says, look, I'm sending you two men, or I'm, I'm going to explain to you two men who exemplify the character that the Christian life is all about. I want you to see that. We see Timothy has proven worth. He's, Paul calls him a son to him. We, he has served with him and for the gospel of Jesus. Paul says there's no one like Timothy who is so concerned for the welfare and the, and the good well-being of the believers in the church. And because Timothy loves Jesus and has a, his mindset on the things of Jesus, he loves, he serves, and he pours himself out for the Philippians. And Epaphroditus is the second example uh, Epaphroditus longs to be with the people of Philippi. We read that Epaphroditus believes in Jesus and suffers almost to death for his sake. Like, like Epaphroditus, he's sick. And get this, this is amazing to me. Um, we don't have anything that tells us that Epaphroditus was worried about his death. We don't have anything that tells us that Epaphroditus was worried about his sickness. All we are told is that Epaphroditus was worried that they would be anxious about him. So you've got a man sitting on his deathbed, very close to death, the verse tells us. He's so sick, and he, it's almost like 
in the, in the words he can muster up the energy for, Paul records that he says, I'm worried about the Philippians that they might be worried that I might die. My concern is that they might be anxious about my illness. Like, I am not even close to being as concerned <laughs> with others above myself that, that I, would, I feel like I would operate in this way. Right? Like, this kind of selflessness seems so far out of reach for me because when I get a little inconvenience, I rarely think about other people above myself or how they might experience me as a result of my little inconvenience. How much more, if I was on my deathbed, would I be consumed with myself? Timothy and Epaphroditus are, are hierarchically, they're, they're below Paul, like Paul is their boss. He kind of tells them, I need you to go here, I need you to go deliver this letter here and encourage this church here. And yet, at the middle of a letter about humility and love and unity and joy, Paul says, I elevate to you an example, two men, humbly, faithfully serving in my kingdom. So we have this call um, to kind of wrap up this morning. We have this call to be children of God. We're, we're to grow in the mind of Christ. We're to grow in our holiness and obedience. We're to work out our, our salvation by doing good and loving well and living in joy and really living out the freedom that we've been won in Christ. We have wonderful examples in Jesus himself, but also in Paul and also in Timothy and also in Epaphroditus. And yet, I just think all of this kind of feels out of reach for me. That's really, after being with this text for a week, it's like, man, this kind, of, this kind of humble, selfless living, this poured out living feels a little out of reach for me. Um, let me read verses 16 through 18. It's what we skipped, but I want to come back to this. Paul is saying, do all of this, live in all of this way, work out your salvation in all of these ways, doing this. Verse 16, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is saying um, that he is willing to be poured out like a drink offering for the sake of their faith. Right? Like literally, he's willing to give of himself all the way, poured out completely for the sake of their faith in the goodness of God. And, and the illustration is, is it's palpable because it makes us think, man, Paul is so selfless, but it's really meant to, to draw our eyes to Christ, the true sacrificial offering for our faith. He is the word in verse 16 that is made flesh. So we hold fast to the word that's made flesh. Jesus pours out his very blood on the cross as the sacrificial offering, not as a offering that we can, we can be selfless for one another, but the, the most selfless one of all was God himself in the form of man on the cross who was poured out completely as a drink offering to, for our faith. He is obedient in life a blameless child. He's innocent. Never once does he grumble. Instead, he lives the life of righteousness and dies the death of sacrifice for the sake of you and me, for our freedom. He rose and ascended to the throne, which sealed the finished work of his life and death applied to us. And when we have faith in him, he sends his Holy Spirit going above and beyond, doing even more. He sends his spirit into those who believe so that God, not us, would work in us for his glory. This is this is grace for us this morning that, that all of that 
God did because it makes him happy. This is, this is the God of Christianity that separates us from all religion. That God incarnate lived, died, rose again, sent his spirit because it makes him happy. Where the other gods of the world demand work to be happy, our God shows us his work makes him happy. The grace is you don't have to hang on a cross like Jesus to pour yourself out. You don't have to travel and plant churches all over a region like Paul to pour yourself out. You don't even have to be recorded as a glimpery in the Bible to pour yourself out, which is good news because we're not getting in at this point. But, but Paul gives the, these two men as an example at the beginning of our, uh, at the middle of the letter because we're just shown simple, humble, menial service, right? They, they poured themselves out quietly. They rested in the work of God. They, they did this when they were being watched by Paul, and when they were not being watched by Paul, they labored to do admin work. They gave generously. They spoke about Jesus with courage, and they cared about others more than themselves. The question I posed at the beginning is, who are we when we aren't seen? And the question for myself is, is when I'm alone, do I... How do I talk to myself? Do I grumble to myself? Do I, do I live into cynicism? Do I win fights in the shower that are make-believe in my head? Do I consider what I'm owed or what I deserve? And the answer is I do. I do. But the Bible here in these words gives me a vision for a better private life. It's the vision of resting in the finished work of God. It's the vision of inviting the Spirit of God to work in me. It's the vision of working out my salvation in reverence and freedom for who God is and what he has done. It's, it's the freedom to be charitable in the way I think about brothers and sisters in and out of the church. And Ultimately, I'm invited to pour myself out in the mundane and the menial of life. In parenting, I get to pour myself out. In friendship, I get to pour myself out. In my parish, I get to pour myself out for my brothers and sisters. But we can only pour out what we're filled with. That's what Paul's getting at here. If we're, if we're filled with anger or, or bitterness or selfishness, then what pours out of us is cynicism and dispute. But we, church, are not filled with those things, even if in season it might feel like it. The reality is we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore we have access to being filled with the things of God. Humility, love, charitable, uh, a charitable feeling towards our brothers and sisters, unity, service, humility, selflessness, if we fill ourselves up with the, thing, the things that God is happy and eager to fill us up with in private, then we have no choice but to overflow with love, unity, grace, forgiveness to one another. We can pour out in humble, selfless, generous, and loving service because Christ was poured out completely on our behalf. We rest in that. God works in us, and therefore we are free to work. As we do... We will be like lights. We'll be like lights, illuminating a path that tells a dark, twisted and crooked world there is a better way, there is a better home. It's the way of rest, it's the way of joy, it's the way of love, and it's in God himself, in Christ. 
You don't have to do anything. You just get to rest in who he is. And from there, we can work. We're free. We illuminate a path for those searching, which is everyone who doesn't know Jesus. And to those searching, Jesus says what? He says, all who are weary, all who are searching, come to me and I will give rest. Let's pray. Lord, would you make this truth palpable to us this morning, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ and that we would be emboldened by the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, God. Holy Spirit, we invite you to embolden us, to infill us, to be in private or in public vessels of light and truth and uh, humility and love and joy and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control for the sake of those who search in our midst. To say, I don't know what it is about him or I don't know what it is about her. They're not perfect. They're honest. They're authentic. But there is a lack of cynicism that is, is refreshing. There is a, a real optimism. And they work for the sake of others, not for themselves. What is it about them? And we get to smile and laugh, Lord, and say, it's, it, it's about Jesus. Would we be bold to say that? Would we be bold to proclaim your name to those who come looking for light? We, there's nothing more important. Lord, we, we worship you. Your name is great above all. And yet you have come down as a baby and grown into a man and were slaughtered like a lamb and rose like a god and a king and sit on the throne even now, hearing this prayer, perfecting it for the Father. And you're pleased. You're pleased with us who are in you in the room. You, you are pleased in us. You're pleased to continue to work with us. You are patient with us. And yet your desire is my desire for myself, that I would grow more and more and more into the image of Jesus for the sake of many knowing you. So Lord, I pray that we would, we would feel the encouragement and the joy and the rest that comes with a hard text like this, and we would see exemplary character and not feel burdened or shamed or so far away that it feels unattainable, but say, oh gosh, the same Holy Spirit that works in Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus is at work in me? And the answer is yes. Lord, we worship you. We love you. We trust you with the process Help us to rest in your goodness this morning. In your name we pray, amen.